We'll be continuing in the Gospel of John. If you'd please open your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you remember, I'm going to continue to point this out. In John 20, we're told the purpose of the whole Gospel, this whole book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And one of the other ministries we support, a wonderful ministry, are the deacons. And there are so many stories of people picking up Bibles in hotel rooms, opening them up to the Gospel of John or some other Scripture. John is very common for God to use this gospel to instruct people's souls about who the Messiah is that they could have life in His name. He gives them faith in reading His holy word. Last week we saw that Jesus responded to two accusations. One accusation was that He broke the fourth commandment. And the second accusation was that He made Himself equal with God. To the first accusation, He in all effects says, no, no, I'm not breaking the fourth commandment by healing on the Sabbath. But his argument is not at all what they expect. They maybe are expecting him to argue the, the, the niceties of every other 39 rules that they've added to the fourth commandment or something like that. But he doesn't go there. His argument is that just as his father is working, upholding the whole universe and not charged with Sabbath-breaking because He owns the universe. In other words, that's His house. Because it's happening in His own domain. So Jesus, the Son, can also not be charged with Sabbath-breaking for healing, implicitly arguing that He also owns the whole universe. Last week we broke that out and showed how this really was an argument for His divinity. Well, he continues arguing for his own equality with God. Far from denying this particular accusation, he goes about defending it through the whole rest of chapter 5. He defends it first by showing his equality with the Father. This is the focus of today through verse 30 of chapter 5. And then secondly, by appealing to witnesses in defense of his divinity. And that's from verses 30 through 47. That will be the focus next week. So we're going to read John chapter 5. I'll begin in verse 16. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of this holy portion of God's holy word. John 5, beginning in verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was call, even calling him, calling God his own father, and making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And I can do nothing on my own, as I hear and judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who has sent me. Amen. Please be seated. Let us turn now to the Lord in prayer that He would give us wisdom. God, we know that all of Your Scriptures are useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. That the men of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We know that every word is breathed out by Your Holy Spirit. And that it is perfect. That it is holy and inerrant. And yet we also realize that in our human understanding, without any spiritual help, we could do nothing to understand this more. Please open our eyes, soften our hearts, unstop our ears, that we might hear and obey Your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message is Absolute Equality with God. When we read about Jesus, when we read about the Father, rather, coming down on Mount Sinai, and you read of all the extensive Uh, preparation made, getting the cattle away from the mountain, making sure no one else comes up on the mountain because the Father would be coming down to the mountain to show Himself and proclaim His name to Moses. And you get a sense of the, the deep awe and reverence that was given to Father, Almighty Yahweh. Isn't it striking that Jesus possesses that same honor that same glory, that same majesty, and He condescended to come to earth. And He's blasphemed day after day after day by wicked men. Blasphemed. And such is His grace and tenderness and kindness and love and mercy toward all of those whom He came to save that He endures such blasphemy, such wicked men. He endures them with great patience. And yet His holiness is the same as the Father's and always has been. That's the point of the sermon. And He's defending the same sovereign and divine holiness that He possessed in heaven. We'll see first His sovereignty and His divinity and His domain and His work, which is the point of last week's sermon. Just going to touch it briefly. Secondly, in His purpose and His sonship, being one with the Father. His power and His honor. Fourthly, His prerogative to save. And fifthly, His power to judge. Today's truth is simply what we confess and has been confessed by churches for thousands of years. 
that the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, was begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, made of the same substance with the Father. That's our God. That's our Savior. And with the Holy Spirit, they have the same essence, the same substance, the same divine attributes. Firstly, verses 16 through 18, we see the sovereign domain and work of Jesus. It's the same as the Father. And this is why the Jews were persecuting, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath, it says. And Jesus said, My Father's working until now, and I am working. This is the entire focus of the previous sermon. That Christ's divinity is seen in the nature of His work. The Father does it, and because this is also His domain, He cannot be charged with breaking Sabbath, healing and saving and teaching and commanding, speaking, because His Father is also doing these things, sustaining all of the universe on His holy day. So Jesus proclaims His equality with the Father. They have the same domain. This is the Son's universe. He holds all things together by the word of His power. They have the same authority to work on the Sabbath, but He's not breaking Sabbath by doing good deeds, by doing acts of mercy and necessity. And yet the Jews knew exactly that He was making a claim of equality with God. And that's why in verse 18 they said, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill Him. All the more to kill Him. Because not only was He in their minds breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Well, secondly, we see that He also has the same divine purpose and sonship. The same divine purpose with the Father. He calls Him my Father. I remember uh, one of the, the most exciting days in the life of a military fighter squadron it was called Squadron Family Day. Really, really a lot of fun. Uh, the spouses and the families would come to the squadron where their husbands spent, mostly husbands spent 12 to 15 hours a day uh, striving to become proficient at flying jets. The day is filled with fun for the kids. They open the simulators up. These are all behind vaults. So there's a lot of effort required to get the vaults open so that people without security clearances can come into the simulators. Um, they can sit in the simulators and fly the simulators, which are 360-degree simulators. They're awesome. Um, the spouses, a lot of the ladies get taxi rides. Actually, high-speed taxi rides in the jets. So the, the ladies, some of the, the two-seat, we have two or three two-seat models in every squadron, and the ladies would get in the back seat, and their husbands would take them out to the runway, go to max afterburner, accelerate down the runway for two seconds maybe, pull the throttles back to idle, coast to the end of the runway, and clear. There was a big picnic at the end of it. Uh, often we would go to the control tower in the middle of the base, go up into the tower, and Look at all the, the, the sphere of the air traffic control's influence. You would go and put on the G-suits and the helmets and all the equipment. 
And there was a real good purpose for it's not just fun. There's a purpose for the warfighter to be fully engaged. He had to know that his family was fully behind him in the mission. He had to know that his wife was right with him. There had to be a unity of purpose for this mission to work. For all of the sacrifices to be swallowed, not just by the husband, but by the whole family, all the time away, all of the hard work, the threat to life, etc., etc. Everyone had to be all in. And that was the purpose of this family day. Well, Jesus calls himself the Son of God, uniting his purpose with that of the Father. He's showing for all of these people listening. My purpose is exactly like the Father's, and I'm here with you. I'm showing you what this purpose is. I'm showing you how our Father lives. I'm showing you how our Father thinks. Showing you how our Father works. Because I am the eternal Son. Jesus calls Himself in these verses His Father 12 times. This is emphatic. You remember in the Old Testament, to, to see the same word three times, is the most emphatic thing that you can say in Hebrew. Most often we see holy, holy, holy. This is exclamation point upon exclamation point. This is an infinitive holy that we can't imagine. Or this morning in Sunday school, ruin, ruin, ruin. Heaven forbid that God would ever declare that kind of ruin upon our own culture, upon our own country. That was a ruin that is absolutely definitely coming. Well, here he, got, he calls God his father 12 times, 12 times, my father, my father, my father. And he's showing that he's equal with the father. He's making a divine truth claim regarding his unique identity. He is the eternal son of God. We are also sons and daughters of God, but we're adopted. He's the eternal only begotten Son of God. And this is why they hated Him. Because He told them the truth. He claimed an intimacy with God that they could never have. And as the only divine, eternal Son, He shows the same purpose and redemptive mission with His Father and with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says to them in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, or literally, Amen, Amen, I say to you, truly, truly, this is a favorite exclamatory phrase of Jesus. You know, the Pharisees debated the meanings of words and this word means this and this means this and they had no real sound doctrine. It was always in flux. And here Jesus shows up teaching as one who has authority and He doesn't do that. He just says, truly, truly, this is real. This is the truth. And He says, truly, truly, Absolute truth is coming. This is pure eternal truth from the Son of God. They should listen. Truly, truly, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So you see, Jesus is arguing from a higher truth than they can imagine. They want worldly, fleshly arguments and he lifts it up to the perspective of the Godhead. He's not saying that he's somehow lesser in divine power or knowledge or ability. Absolutely not. This is not his point. 
they rightly understood he was arguing exactly the opposite. He was arguing from the perspective of God. And that's what offended them so. He was arguing from the perspective of God's proclamation in Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God. And he says, this is my father and I'm his son. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He's saying, I'm the creator as well. He does not faint or grow weary and his understanding is unsearchable. These people wanted a human argument and he confronts them with the divine reality of his own divinity. Of the Godhead. That's why he says, I can do nothing of myself. It's simply a declaration that He is perfectly uni in, in unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. I see not my own will, but the, the will of my Father who sent me. They're completely unified in their purpose, in their work, and in their will. So when He says the Son can do nothing of His own accord, He's not saying that He's not able, apart from the Father, to do something. He's literally saying in the Greek, the Son can do nothing out of Himself. In John 10, verse 30, He explains that I and the Father are one. That's what He's saying. I'm one with the Father. It's impossible for Him to do something without Me. And vice versa. And with the Holy Spirit, these three persons are one God. They're the same in substance. They're the equal in power. And in glory. So Jesus tells them, we are one. We work together. What God does, I do. What the Spirit does, I do. We have the same purpose. They have different roles in our redemption, but they have the same ultimate purpose. Isn't this amazing? The Father selects the elect before all time. The Son comes and redeems the elect. And the Spirit applies that redemption to His elect. All unified around the same people. The same group of people. The Father gives a people to the Son. The Son comes and acts as a mediator for those people. And the Spirit of Christ lives in those adopted children. They're in complete unity and their work is always perfectly and infinite, infinitely and eternally unified. And we read in Acts chapter 2 that even Christ's death on the cross was part of this definite plan and foreknowledge. Nothing escapes the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in their providence. And eternal decrees. And it's always been this way. And always will be this way. Jesus here is speaking of His eternal and essential nature as very God of very God. He continues in verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. There are no secrets in the Godhead. What the Father does, the Son does. What the Spirit does, the Son does. The Father does. Just as His knowledge is perfect and complete, so the Father's knowledge is perfect and complete. And you see, the more you see of the work of the Godhead on the earth, the more you're going to marvel. You remember in John chapter 3, Jesus already explained to Nicodemus that the work of the Messiah was one of revelation. He came to reveal the Father. Nicodemus could not even see the kingdom of God. And he's the teacher of Israel. He couldn't even see the kingdom of God. Except that he's born again of the Spirit. Jesus shows the Father. And once that happens, once you're born again, the Spirit testifies that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Truly, truly. Into your own soul. 
So his purpose is the love of God the Father, and the results are the revelation of God the Son, and He reveals the Father to us. And this causes us to marvel. So the Son really is the revelation of the love and mercy of God in His incarnation. And He's coming back again, and He's going to be the revelation of the wrath and justice of God. No other prophet or man was spoken to from heaven directly by God. None. God didn't speak to Moses the way He spoke to Jesus. God didn't speak to Elijah or Adam or Noah or anyone the way He spoke to His own Son. When Jesus was baptized, do you remember what He said? This is My Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. By the way, this phrase encapsulates everything your own children need to hear from your lips. You're mine. I love you. I'm well pleased. Your children need to hear that from you often. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God never said that about anyone else. He's one in substance with the Father. And that's why the Jews were seeking to kill him. They had an absolute unity of essence and a purpose. Over and over again, Jesus makes the same point. I and the Father are one. I am the Son of God. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. He had glory with God before the world began that they could not imagine. Before Abraham was born, I am. He says all these things in John. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Begotten of His Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. If you have trouble affirming any one of those things that we just said, you need to come talk to me. Jesus is fully God and fully man. By calling God His Father and referring to Himself as the Son, and also by showing that He has the same redemptive purpose and unity of mission as the Father does, He also shows His sovereign and divine Sonship as the first evidence of His divinity. Thirdly, we see that He has the same power and honor as the Father. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. This is another proof of Jesus' equality with God. He possesses the sovereign power to give eternal life. The Father raises the dead and gives life, so the Son gives life to whom He will. You remember what instigated this whole defense of His, of his divinity was healing a poor man by a pool. This is a crippled man. He had been there for many, many years. And Jesus heals him as an object lesson, in a sense. That's why it says, greater works than these will you see. You're looking at this poor man whom I've healed. Greater works than this will you see. The reality is that the real healing, the giving of life, of eternal life, was also part of his nature. He didn't just heal everyone at the pool, did he? He said it was so crowded that the man couldn't get close to the water. And Jesus didn't heal every single person there. He picked out one guy to heal. 
He's showing us that Christ gives life to whomever He will. Not all, but those who are chosen for life. You did not choose Me, but I chose you, He tells His apostles and tells His church. And we see throughout the ministry of the church the same thing. The Gospel is preached faithfully in God's faithful churches around the world for 2,000 years. Do all believe the truth? No. Who believes? As many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Jesus has divine power to save and He will not lose a single one whom His Father has given Him. Not one. This is part of His divine power and sovereignty. Why? Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Do you hear what he's saying? All the honor that you see displayed for the Father in all of the Scriptures, that same honor is due the Son. Which makes you shudder when you see, again, the blasphemy that's shown. The Son of God. But in these verses also, we see a summary of Christ's divine mediatorial work. He's a prophet, priest, and king, remember? As a prophet, what does he do? He speaks the very words of God. He's speaking truly, truly truth to the people. As a priest, he, he gives life to whomever he will. And as the king, we'll see in the next verse, he has, he has the right of judgment over all the universe. The absolute divine power and privilege and honor of Jesus are the same as the Son and always will be. This is what Jesus is telling these blasphemous and rebellious men. They were dealing with God when they spoke to Him. They rejected Him. They rejected God. They hated Him. They looked, these Pharisees, these, these teachers, they looked really good on the outside. Jesus even tells them later, you look great, but your heart is full of wickedness. This is a rebuke to the church in every age. We can all dress up and look good and appear to be righteous on the outside. But do you really honor the Son with your life? Do you honor the Son with how you live? With your thoughts and your words and your deeds? Are you directed toward heaven? If it's only external, you might as well just stop. They hated Jesus for this, but this will not always be the case. In Revelation 5, we're granted a, a vision of heaven when we see Jesus receiving the honor that He's always had. Revelation 5.11, John says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is exactly what the response of the Pharisees should have been. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. They should have been on their faces as Moses was before their God. And they rejected Him. 
Well, fourthly, we see also in these Scriptures, in His defense, we see Jesus' prerogative, not only His power to save, but His prerogative to save. To save. Verses 24-26. through 26. He says, truly, truly, again, amen, amen. This is truth. Listen. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I want you to notice in these verses just the great comfort these words have for God's people. Are you troubled and distraught about something this morning? Is something heavy on your heart? Is there some physical ailment that is constantly beating you down? Is there a relationship that is broken beyond repair? Are you concerned for the eternal destiny of some of your loved ones or friends? Are you concerned about the suffering, the physical suffering of family or friends? We can all say yes to these questions. Even are you concerned about the own sin that dwells within you that you feel like you cannot get a hold of it? You cannot conquer it. There's great comfort in these words for all of God's people. All those who hear and believe Christ. You have eternal life. He doesn't say all who hear these words and believe them will have eternal life. He says today you have eternal life. The moment you believe in the Gospel and Jesus Christ as He's presented in the Gospel, you you respond to Him in faith and repentance. The moment you actually believe the truth of God with with your soul, you begin in that moment living eternally. You've passed from death to life. And what an amazing reality. And this divine power and providence to save by hearing and believing this life that He gives you is a stunning transition from your former way of death. Now you have life. Does that mean all of your problems change? The problem itself may not change, but up here you know that it's all different. You have a new attitude. A new way of life. 1 John 3.14, almost the exact same words are used. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So those who have passed from death to life know that their lives are different because in spite of all of the difficulties of life, they love the brothers. Who's that? That's us. Look around. We're the brothers. But they also have a new attitude. They have a fearless confidence that whatever God brings into their lives is going to work out. The Bible teaches this in Romans chapter 8. Very familiar verses, but listen to them. Listen to these words and let them comfort your soul. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul acknowledges that this life is going to be hard for the Christian. But no, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you pass from death to life, that's all true for you. All of it. What a comfort. What a comfort to the Christian. Only Jesus has this power to give life. And when He does, it's once and for all. Are you afraid of what the future holds? You're not trusting your God who holds all things in His hands. Turn to the Lord in prayer. The world can take everything else from us. They can never take Jesus. Read Hebrews 11. Encourage your souls that many men and women have gone before us and paid the ultimate price and they were faithful to the end because of Jesus. In verse 26, Jesus explains, again, continuing His defense, the Father has life in Himself, so He's granted the Son also to have life in Himself. In other words, the, the life that the Father has is not derived from anything or anyone. Very different from all of us. All of our lives were derived. They come from something. Physically, they come from our parents. Ultimately, they come from Jesus, from the Creator of all things, from the Almighty God. But God comes from nowhere and from nothing. He's the eternal and powerful I Am. That's our Father. And so the Son has life in Himself. It's exactly the same. You might wonder in Isaiah chapter 6 why He's called the Everlasting Father. Sorry, chapter 7. He's called the Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Why is Jesus called the Everlasting Father? I thought the Father was the Father. They are so much alike in their eternal nature that Isaiah calls Him the Everlasting Father. Just as the Father is unique and holy and completely self-sufficient, so is the Son. He's infinite in Himself. And this is why the life He gives is eternal life. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed, brothers and sisters. And usually on the earth, it seems that Jesus hid His glory. He was Almighty God and He put up with a lot of back talk, didn't He? Like in my house, one thing I'd, I'd struggled hard with was to be patient when there was back talk. Like I needed to discipline, this is true. I needed to swat the kid, whatever. But I had to do it with a right heart and with great patience. And Jesus showed perfect patience with all of the back talk from these rebellious people whom He came to while He was on earth. His glory was hidden from them. But not always. Right before they crucified Him, they came to the garden with soldiers and lanterns. In John 18, John describes this. Jesus walked up to this crowd and said, Who are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. And they all fell down. Why did they all fall down? 
For just that moment, He displayed His glory. He said, I am. And they fell down. And then He withdrew His glory back to Himself because He knew He was going to go through with this. And He allowed Himself to be killed. He has sovereign power to give life because He has all life in Himself. Last point, He has sovereign power to judge. He says, the Father judges no one. Verse 22. In verses 27 to 29, He says, the Father has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Again, when you see the phrase Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' favorite phrases, you need to think of Ezekiel. Ezekiel came proclaiming judgment and great destruction on those who would reject Him. Reject the Almighty God. But in this judgment, we see that Jesus is the King. I think many of us think that the Father will be the one judging. He's the one we've offended, maybe. In our minds, we've offended Him most. The holiness of the Father. We've broken the commands of the Father. We would expect to face the judgment of the Father. Christ said, we're going to face the judgment of the Son. That's why this dichotomy of of the judging and mean father with the loving and kind son, it's ridiculous. Everything you see in the father has the son, has the spirit. And Jesus the son is coming to judge. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when the tombs will be open and all who have done good will be resurrected to life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Everyone is going to be resurrected someday. You're going to be resurrected to judgment or resurrected to life. He says we're resurrected to life. Why? Because we have done good. Wait a minute. Are we resurrected to life because we've done good? Well, that's what he says. But there's more to the story. You see, what he's doing is he's He's showing us that God's sovereignty and our responsibility are actually the same. Once He saved you, you cannot help but do good. That's why in the parable of the sheep and the goats, He says, come into this this inheritance that's prepared for you by My Father. Because when I was sick, you helped Me and visited Me. When I was thirsty, you gave Me drink, etc., etc. And they are all asking, what? When did we do these things? What is He showing us? He's showing us that for the real believer, you don't even understand that you've been changed Then you do these things instinctively. You want to do good. That's Ezekiel chapter 36. He puts it in our hearts. And our choices are increasingly guided by the Spirit. This is true. Our words, our thoughts, our deeds all become more and more like the Father until it's just second nature. We don't even understand it because the Holy Spirit is working through us. And praise God. Yes, we're saved by faith and not by works. But it is a faith that works. And it always is for all of God's redeemed. He will come for everyone. And for those who have done evil, they will face a resurrection of judgment. Jesus Christ, the whole reason He came was to bring those into His own family who would have faith. And every one of you has a responsibility to believe the Gospel, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. He came. He lived a perfect life. He took the penalty that was due to us on Himself on the cross. And then He offers this life to all who would believe. And this offer is for everyone who hears the Gospel. You can't say, well, I don't believe because I'm not among the elect. It's garbage. You don't believe because you're rebellious and you don't want to believe. 
Come to God today. Turn to Him in faith and repentance. He's done everything to bring you to this place where you've heard the truth. Now you should respond in faith and believe it. Let's turn now to this time of the Lord's Supper. Our Lord Jesus Christ,